0: Hey, Magnificasters. This week, Dean's away. He's at Catholic Summer Camp, (laughs) which is very funny to say. I'm sure he'll have a full report back next week. But even though Dean isn't here, I was able to put together a pretty cool episode with Alex from the Support Jessica Resnitschek campaign. If you're not familiar, Jessica Resnitschek is a Catholic worker and climate activist from Iowa who was recently indicted by a grand jury in 2019 for a number of acts of sabotage against the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline. It's estimated that her actions cost 6 million in damages by stopping 30 million barrels of oil in the pipeline. And as things stand right now, Jessica is incarcerated and will likely carry out her eight-year sentence. Um, Though, I don't know. I always hope in the future, maybe something will change. In the end, she'll be required to pay something like $3.2 million in restitution, um, something that to me seems pretty outrageous. To make matters worse, in the trial, she was labeled as a terrorist for her actions, even though the target of her activism was squarely on the pipelines and no one was hurt at all. That kind of designation will play a pretty big part in the story, uh, so make sure you pay attention when Alex starts talking about that. Before we get to the conversation with Alex, though, I thought it'd be good to include some of Jessica's voice somehow. It's pretty hard since she's incarcerated, Um, but here is a clip of Jessica and her co-conspirator Ruben Montoya addressing the situation back in 2017. It's not as good as having her voice, you know, here, but um, I think it's it's a nice way to sort of contextualize the conversation and where this is all coming from.
1: We are speaking publicly to empower others to act boldly, with purity of heart, to dismantle the infrastructures which deny us our rights to water, land, and liberty. We as civilians have seen the repeated failures of the government, and it is our duty to act with responsibility and integrity, risking our own liberty for the sovereignty of us all.
2: Some may view these actions as violent, but be not mistaken. We acted from our hearts and never threatened human life nor personal property. What we did do was fight a private corporation that has run rapidly across our country, seizing land and polluting our nation's water supply.
0: Again, that was Jessica Reznicek and Ruby Montoya from 2017. There are two things that really strike me when it comes to the Jessica Rosenzweig story. When it comes to climate change, it's hard not to feel like things are desperate and bleak. Recent reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that we're already on track and basically guaranteed for a 1.2 degrees Celsius average increase in global warming. And if we don't drastically change our patterns of consumption and production, things will just get worse. And when you tell people those kinds of facts, they usually get pretty down and think it's kind of hopeless. Uh, those big gloomy numbers and a foreknowledge of, you know, obstructionist politicians who care more about the profits of oil companies than they do people can make us feel pretty doomed. And if you listen to this podcast, you know, you've heard it all before. We've talked about it quite a bit. Jessica Resencheck, however, acted on her conscience with full knowledge of how dire things were. And she chose to do something that I think is pretty courageous. I'm not recommending anyone go out and sabotage an oil pipeline. But in the face of an existential threat like climate change, it's imperative that we, like Jessica, find ways to act that pump the brakes on the production of fossil fuels. The second thing that really sticks out to me about Jessica's witness is that she's not simply engaging in activism for like a purely pragmatic reason. As Alex will make clear in a few minutes... There's a real spiritual aspect to her work and her activism that I think is really interesting, and maybe we can think about how we would emulate it or something. Jessica's actions follow from her practice of contemplation and conscience. It's pretty obvious that her activism kind of flows out of her faith, and that's a cool thing to see. So I think that there's a lot to take away from her life and her witness as an activist, and maybe you'll find yourself disagreeing with her actions, and you're welcome to feel that way. But disagree or not, it's important that we as Christian people and fellow activists hold the government accountable when they start labeling people like Jessica as a terrorist and continue to ignore the problem of climate change. It's not good. And it's not going to make anything better. All right, without any more rambling from me, uh, here's Alex. Thanks for coming on the show, Alex. I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Um, whenever we have a guest on our show, we always just ask them to introduce themselves. So can you tell us uh, who you are, what you're about, and what uh, campaign you're working with? Yeah, thanks for having us.
1: Uh, my name's Alex Cohen. I'm a climate justice organizer, and I'm a member of the Free Jessica check support team. I uh, believe in the intersection of um, like climate change and its impact on humanity. So while i love the environment and nature what really draws me to climate and environmental organizing is the impact on humans um so i'm interested in the intersections of stopping the expansion of fossil fuels via pipelines or any infrastructure that is you know expanding the fossil fuel industry at a time when we need to stop all new expansion and you know eliminate all existing fossil fuels um but I'm also interested in learning how to create systems and networks to take care of people that are certainly going to be impacted by the increasing climate crisis that we're in right now. So I try to um, and stay involved in disaster relief organizing, mutual aid networks, um, migrant justice work um, as well on top of that, that's stopping, stopping the problem and also trying to you know, build up and build networks to support each other as
0: well. Well, we're here to mostly talk about Jessica Rezenschick, but it's great to hear about you, too. Um, so Jessica's story is a really fascinating one. It's something I've been following for a while. But uh, as someone who's working closely with her and like on her campaign, um, you know, you're know, you doing what you can to support her now that she's been incarcerated. Um, how would you tell her story to people who are unfamiliar? I know that's kind of an awkward thing since you know, you're not her, but uh, how would you do it?
1: Yeah, I guess I would start with the day I met Jessica, and that was in 2016. Um, I was headed... Had the DNC had just happened, and um, you know, people were kind of feeling disempowered after all that, and people were talking about, hey, there's a you know indigenous group that is preparing to fight the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, so, uh, people should head to, to North Dakota. So I I went home to St. Louis, which is my home, and I was getting getting ready to head to North Dakota, and as I was doing that, I heard this person on the radio named Jessica Reschke on St. Louis Public Radio you know being like I'm in a ditch alone in Iowa and there's no one here and I'm trying to resist this pipeline please come come join me so I was like well she seems pretty cool and seems like she needs help so instead of going to North Dakota where everyone was going I went to Iowa and it was only 3 hours north of St. Louis so we went with a crew of people from St. Louis it's the first time I met Jessica and I learned that she had showed up by herself to this, this access road where they were drilling underneath the Mississippi River. And by herself, she set up a blockade and waited for the trucks to come in the morning. She was arrested, uh, released 24 hours later. She did it again, was arrested, released 24 hours later. And she asked the sheriff where she could be without being arrested. And he pointed to the ditch. So she set up a tent on the ditch and, you know, eventually asked the world to join her. And people did hundreds, eventually would come to this ditch. And she kind of fomented this, this direct action resistance in Iowa. And the coolest thing about it, I think, was <clears throat> through this process, I got to learn who Jessica was. I got to become her friend. And I got to really watch her in her element. And that was to be, like, surrounded by community and um, really organizing people and resources in a, way, um, in a way that was really special to watch.
0: That's really incredible. I, I love that. <laughs> what a great story. Just Jessica runs the chicken in a ditch and then everyone else comes. It's fantastic. How does that spin out to like the rest of the story? Uh, how does that, I guess, from there, how, do, how does she get to, um, I don't know, sabotaging pipelines and, and stuff? Yeah, so
1: the campaign in the ditch with um, Jessica and what was called Mississippi Stand lasted about a month and a half. And eventually we were <laughs> evicted from the ditch and um, there was a different property where some people moved to um And at that point, Jessica kind of went back to Des Moines. She's a Catholic worker. She went to, back to the Catholic worker community in Des Moines. and um she kind of regrouped and was trying to figure out ways to fight this. You know, she was pretty disempowered after we were evicted from the ditch and wasn't feeling like that collective resistance was um, was her journey anymore. So she actually started a hunger strike in front of the Iowa Utilities Board. And during this hunger strike, her and one other person basically sat and fasted for um, 10 days in front of the Iowa Utility Board demanding they stop the pipeline. Um, They didn't revoke the permits. Uh, A lot of people came and supported Jessica, but again, the pipeline did not shut down. And this followed before both of these campaigns where she was involved for years locally, you know, going to public hearings and... Doing all this, and she she continued to become more disillusioned. And as she said, she became to get more desperate, you know, thinking this pipeline had to stop. And so um, at that point, she went on her own and kind of disconnected from everyone. And with one other person, and she uh, they disabled parts of the pipeline before before it was active, before there was oil flowing. through.
0: Yeah, that's an amazing story to kind of see her go from one one place to the next. Uh, it's it's good to help kind of contextualize what's going on there. Well, you know, a a lot of the media around Jessica's trial and activism, I think, uh, is really interesting. And I've just been reading, like, interviews with her and kind of trying to get a feel for, like, what she's all about. And it's, I don't know, it's a complicated thing to know somebody through, like, interviews like that. Um, I guess you probably have a pretty different perspective knowing her more as as an activist and a person. In that media, I think a lot of people like, characterize her as like, uh, you know, like somebody in the tradition of Catholic anti-war protesters, like Daniel Berrigan or somebody, you know, someone who's willing to do vandalism, but, um, you know, along these like sort of lines of their, their faith. And to me, that makes sense. But I don't know. What do you think? Does that seem like an appropriate comparison? Is that sort of the vein that she, you know, her activism is coming out of? Or do you think that it's something different?
1: One hundred percent. She um, she's been a Catholic worker for 11 years. She's um and inspired by the plowshares tradition, um, she actually did a plowshares action before this plowshares action in 2015, I believe, at Northrop Grunham, where she went to the headquarters of Northrop Grunham, and she um, used a hammer and uh, broke the windows at the war manufacturer's um, office, and um, she represented herself in trial, she spent three months in prison and. At the end, she actually won her trial. Um, She got the felony reduced to a misdemeanor and got time served when she was representing herself. Um, But yeah, she definitely comes out of the Catholic worker tradition. She actually lived in the Berrigan House at the Des Moines Catholic Worker community, and the the two cats at the house were Phil and Dan. The community she lives in and her her own tradition herself was um, definitely inspired by that. And before she moved back to... um, before she moved back to Iowa, when she was on house arrest, she was living with um, she was living with nuns in a monastery um, up in Minneapolis, and that continues to be her, her spiritual support community, a community that advocated for her, you know, pleaded with the judge to give her a shorter sentence and not call her a terrorist and kind of where she still draws her stability even in prison
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense to me that's great i I bet those cats they're always on the run when it comes to activism in the tradition of like the catholic worker i guess uh what comes to mind is is people who are really acting on their conscience um you know they are uh encountering something uh unjust and terrible in the world and you know they can't they can't live their lives knowing that it's kind of happening right um So I think it's always interesting to see how conscience plays a role in that type of activism. I don't know, would you say that's characteristic of how Jessica Rosacek acts and moves out of the environmental justice space? I guess, like, is that how you'd characterize her resistance? Is it an act of conscience or is it, I don't know, something different?
1: Yeah, I think I'd be interested to hear her answer. I can say is, like, you know, through hearing her talk about this, is that something that is, like, really important to her before she takes any action is this idea of contemplation and like sitting with the decision, right? No, nothing is rash. Like um, everything she's done, she does with intention and she sat with before and she's weighed all the consequences and was willing to face whatever consequences, um, knowing that action was of a, great, a greater value to humanity, you know, to
0: her conscience, to
1: the collective consciousness.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I like the the contemplative aspect of it. I think that's really, um, I don't know, pretty inspiring. You know what would uh, what would she say is like the greater the greater good of her action? Um, you know, like I, I feel like somebody who is maybe more cynical might look at her story and be like, "Well, it's someone who um, you, you know disassembled parts of a pipeline, and maybe that's like great for the short term, but what what does it get people long term? Do you think?"
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in my opinion you know, a lot of, and history shows that direct action is what has delivered results for people, material results for people. Um, in terms of Jessica's actions in, in particular, again, I wish she was here to respond to that. But, um, what I can say is that, um, you know, the, the no Dapple movement as a whole, which Jessica is a part of, I think created a movement against pipelines that, um, that is was worth every bit of that struggle because I don't know a pipeline being built now that isn't receiving some form of direct action resistance against it and that was not the case before the Dakota Access Pipeline you know there was Keystone but it's very focused on Keystone what we saw after Dakota Access Pipeline was like a spread out of the movement and people really just like resisting this in their backyards and in their front yards and I'm taking what they learned and really, you know, really trying to resist the expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure in the age of the climate crisis. And I think looking at the No Dapple movement, that's something I try to pull inspiration from is that like our movement grew. Um, And I know, I think, I truly believe that, you know, the Atlantic coast pipeline and other pipelines were canceled because of that, that would not have been canceled, whether it, you know, wasn't DAPL alone, But now we're seeing, you know, the leftover residual effect of that.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to tell the story, because, you know, I mean, the way that like, uh, I don't know, the official official media would tell it is just, you know, Jessica Resinchik's story is kind of like a blip in a larger sea of climate activism. But I think that's right. I think it makes sense that she kind of gives some like uh, some energy and some power to that movement um, longer term. I think that's cool. Uh, I like that. You know she okay. So h- how should Justina reznick's like activism inform us as activists who are concerned about climate change? I mean, you yourself are very concerned about that. I think that makes a lot of sense, and you're organizing people in that area. So I don't know. What do you think it is like? What what can we learn from from her witness, from her activism? What's what's there to take away? Do you think?
1: I think the big the big takeaway for me, and this is coming from someone who's involved in you know the campaign to free her and the legal team and all that is that this is the harshest we've seen the state respond to any protest against um against pipelines um the first time we've seen a domestic terrorism enhancement used against you know the modern day climate justice movement of course we had the green scare in the early 2000s but um um so to me, it's that uh, zoom out and look at the globe and it's that, which is what we're trying to do with the campaign. And it's like the world is heating up and so is fascism. And these two are interconnected. And as the climate crisis gets worse, naturally people are going to respond in more drastic ways. And I'm not sure that we are prepared to respond to the way the state is going to respond to those who take action. And so we're kind of seeing that seeing that across the globe right now right the philippines are introducing terrorism laws for environmental protesters in the uk they just introduced a law in response to extinction rebellion that you can't film the police in the global south murder of indigenous activists by corporations many of them u.s and um governments are going up you know those that are protecting the land and water in the global south and um just in Africa last month, uh, environmental headquarters was raided for suspicion of terrorism. So we're kind of seeing the U.S. set the stage and, and say, tell the world it's, it's okay, right, to treat, to label people terrorists who have never killed someone, never had the intent to kill someone, never even committed a crime of terrorism or pled guilty to a crime of terrorism. But it's okay to just slide in this enhancement and give them this label you know for trying to literally save life and protect life um and so i think for me that's where my brain is right now because i'm so involved in in the campaign is how do we protect you know the protectors and how do we um yeah how do we figure out how to take care of people who are going to inevitably take risk because you know our life depends on
0: yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I mean, given so you, you mentioned the Green Scare a minute ago and, um, you know, like the Earth Liberation Front and the Animal Liberation Front. And, you know, they, those folks were they were labeled terrorists early on, and which is very complicated. And I don't know, in my opinion, bad. But um, but I, I guess like the, the thing that sticks out to me that's so bonkers about the Jessica Resnick case, though, is that like she disassembled like heavy tools where no one was around, like, I, I don't know, to me, like, uh, the, so the court labeled her as a terrorist, if people who are listening to this didn't know that, um, you probably do not by now, I'll put it in the introduction for sure. But anyways, um, they, they labeled her a terrorist, but it just like doesn't really make sense to me how how they came to that decision. I don't know, can you talk about that piece a little bit? Yeah, she put she
1: was originally charged with nine felonies, and she was facing up to 120 years to prison. She took um uh, Bled guilty to one an agreement to drop all the other nine if she admitted, you know, in this plea agreement to all, everything she did. So, it dropped all the nine and she pled guilty to the only one that didn't have a mandatory minimum. And that was zero to 20 years was the sentencing guideline. None of these were crimes of terrorism. They were things like... um, you know destruction of property or arson or things like that none of them were federal crimes of terrorism they were all felony federal felony charges so she pled guilty to conspiracy to damage an energy facility and it was the only one without a mandatory minimum no word of the terrorism enhancement was brought up in this process you know over these years no one was expecting this her legal team wasn't expecting this kind of as things went on the political pressure grew because of the fossil fuel industry. And um, 84 Congress people, 80 Republicans and four Democrats wrote a letter to Jeff Sessions to apply a, a terrorism enhancement at her sentencing. So the terrorism enhancement can be applied to anyone charged with a federal crime at sentencing, similar to like a hate crime enhancement or something like that. And basically, at sentencing, no matter what they're charged with, the prosecution can ask for it, the federal government, and then the judge can either accept it or deny it. But a judge can not impose it on its own. The Department of Justice has to request it. So 84 people send this letter to Jeff Sessions asking the Justice Department to pursue it um, at the sentencing. It's at this point we learn that this is kind of like a political ambition and things that are going on. Well, Trump is gone, Biden's Department of Justice is in, we think maybe, you know, this won't work. And even if they do do this enhancement, there's no way a judge will agree to it because the enhancement is reserved for um, actions against the United States government or its employees or property. Very specifically, nowhere in it does it say anything about private corporations, government contractors. I mean, it's very specific to the U.S. government. So... We get to sentencing, a new justice department, and they're still pursuing the terrorism enhancement. Again, the legal team and people don't think the judge is going to take this seriously and that it's mostly political posturing. But the judge applied to it and the judge, the judge applied it and basically said, and so this increased her sentencing guidance range um, by fivefold. So instead of looking at a range of one to three years, she was looking at a range of like um, uh, five to 15, and the judge gave her eight. So um and the judge uses basically said because of her words. So the gold star as the prosecution claimed, both at her sentencing and then at her appeal hearing, which she lost her appeal as well. Um was that because she was critical of the regulatory process of the US government in her words, um, therefore her actions against the private corporation, the Dakota Access Pipeline was retaliation. Um, so, so they use a very convoluted way to both say that, you know, her words are not protected first amendment speech and that those could be weaponized against her. And then on the second hand compared, um, a pipeline corporation to the United States government. (laughs) Um, so that's kind of where we're at now. And, um. It, this this decision was appealed to the 8th Circuit Court, and the 8th Circuit Court basically said, yeah, this enhancement was probably wrong. We're not going to make a decision on whether it was right or wrong. We're going to punt on that. But we're going to say that it doesn't matter either way. It was a harmless error because the judge would have sentenced her to eight years in prison anyways, which is not true.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that seems hard to buy. First of all, that's wild. That's part of the story I didn't know and um awful. You know, so you mentioned that all of these like congress people had to write letters to get this like ter- the terrorism label applied. Like, what was the impetus for them doing that? I mean, if you don't know, it's okay. But, um, but, but, like, that seems like such a wild thing for a group of people who probably, like, weren't paying attention to the case in the first place to suddenly do.
1: I don't know specifically, but I, ABC News did report that, you know, the 84 people who wrote this letter, you know, thirty, they received $36 million in fossil fuel contributions.
0: <laughs> okay. So
1: I can't say specifically, but these are all very, you know, these are representatives who introduced ALEC legislation to criminalize protests They're, you know, bought and paid for by the fossil fuel industry. And we know Dakota Access Pipeline and the American Petroleum Institute ran a specific campaign against Jessica and Ruby. And, um, you know, at the time, Kelsey Warren was on a speaking tour saying people like Jessica uh, and Ruby should be removed from the gene pool. You know, implying that they're less human, and, you know, inhumane things should happen to them. So they definitely became a target of the, of the fossil fuel industry campaign against climate protesters. And um, in that same letter that the 84 Congress people wrote, it said, you know, it didn't name anyone, but it said people who pierce holes through pipelines and it said the valve turners should also be labeled as terrorists.
0: Wild. Um, man, that is such a frustrating thing um but i guess kind of what you'd expect i suppose from i I mean you know that that makes a lot of sense in in the context of in the larger context of uh the u.s sort of setting the stage for um how the world's going to deal with climate protesters turning a little bit in the conversation i guess so uh jessica's been in prison for 365 days well more more than that now but last week marked that 365th day and you all in the campaign, um, you had sort of a digital action around that. And you asked people to kind of post pictures and, um, you know, to speak about it a bit. Yeah, I don't know. What was your goal of the action? Uh, do you think that it worked? Uh, I don't know. What, what's, like, the, the aim of the campaign sort of moving forward? Totally.
1: So um, our big thing, actually, this is a little interesting backstory, is Jessica comes from the Catholic worker tradition. So she owned up to everything she did, right? And she was willing to face the consequences. There wasn't really going to be a support team or a campaign to free her because we assumed under her guidelines she'd get one to three years, and that was something she contemplated. This only became a campaign was the day the judge agreed to the terrorism enhancement after her sentencing. And we were like, with Jessica, like, whoa, this has implications far greater than your case. And obviously, this this is not just, for one, it's not legal, and this is not you know, something you contemplated with. So that's kind of like where the campaign came from. Um, so we're um, wanting to, we're making connections globally, which is a huge part of the campaign to try and connect this, this trend to protesters being criminalized. And then the second part is getting Jessica out of prison as quickly as possible and trying to reverse this precedent in the United States. So, um, we the the first strategy was the appeal to the A Circuit Court, which happened in, I wanna say three months ago now. Um, that was since she had been in, the appeal was filed and we were working on that all the way up until the oral arguments. Um so a bunch of different organizations followed. A friend amicus breeze, friend of the courts of Greece in support of Jessica, you know, saying that this terrorism enhancement is wrong. There's really an interesting four amicus briefs that were filed. If anyone is into this kind of thing, and to really hear the legal argument of how dangerous this is, and they all focus on different areas. One is on international law by the Center for Constitutional Rights, which basically says, like, if Jessica can be deemed a terrorist in the United States, that The United States will move so far beyond an international consensus on what terrorism is that it will be operating rogue in a different realm of the international court of governments across the world. Um, There's one that the National Lawyers Guild and the Water Protector Legal Collective filed, and that basically shows like again, what does this mean for indigenous people in the United States of America, Jessica being labeled a terrorist, and what does the appellate court have a responsibility to First Nations Nations via treaty law Um, in the implication of this enhancement in a movement that was led by indigenous people. Um, There was a brief filed by a a group called Catholic Social Action. It was filed by Catholic attorneys, and it uses the uh, Pope's um, encyclical about climate change in 2015 and all of that to basically say like Jessica was acting out of faith and Catholic tradition. And the uh, last one was by a bunch of different organizations from the peace movement like Code Pink, including um, uh, climate groups like Honor the Earth and uh, different groups like that. And this one was basically focused on you know, the legality, the technicality that Jessica is not a terrorism based on the definition of the terrorism enhancement. And then the second half is a really well-constructed argument that's kind of like a necessity defense that says pipelines are more dangerous than those who protest them. So um, those are really great. They're all on the website. And, um, but unfortunately, we lost that appeal. And so where we are now is we're in an in-between phase where we're consulting with Jessica, we're consulting with other attorneys. And the most important thing we can be doing right now is building up just awareness about her case because the fight has just begun. And we want to use this time to build you know, mass support for her appeal because the direction we're headed is most likely a campaign to seek presidential uh, pardon for Jessica. Um, so that's kind of where we're at right now, where we don't have like direct ask, except for if people share the petition and build that up, then um, you'll not only sign the petition that will eventually go to the president, but it will also uh, get you on the email list to stay up to date on kind of what will happen next while we're in this in between phase.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's frustrating as well, <laughs> but it's it's cool that you know you hear about so many people kind of coming together. Um, you know, in in I, I always think it's really interesting when like uh you know, someone like Jessica or another like radical person of faith or whatever, you know, they come out and do something and, and it gains that kind of solidarity and support. I don't know, are there any interesting connections that are made sort of in that solidarity, like between religious people and environmental groups that are surprising or does it seem all kind of what you'd expect? I guess I think that
1: the interesting or things that are surprising to me maybe about, like, people who are kind of showing up would be some of more of the mainstream institutional climate organizations um, that are kind of showing up right now. Of course, in the amicus brief, you can see this very intersectional group that showed up to put their names on paper and enter it into the record in federal court to say, like, Jessica's not a terrorist. Um, But, you know, we're seeing, like... um, Sunrise, Rainforest Action Network, 350.org, like we're seeing these national groups who play with direct action, but, you know, maybe want to, you know, chain themselves to a pipeline or something, kind of come here and and say, we're going to put our name on this petition, like Jessica's not a terrorist and this does affect us all. And that has been very cool. And very surprising to see this kind of wide base of support and this wide understanding of of what happens to Jessica happens to all of us. We're also seeing it from the scientific community, the climate science community, including lead authors of the IPCC kind of sign on and write public declarations saying what's happening to Jessica, you know, is not okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool to see how, um, I guess, the... Jessica's politicization of of the pipelines and of, you know, climate issues kind of radicalized more people who are, I, I don't know, uh, more liberal than radical, I suppose. So that's great. Um, okay, well, moving forward, you know, you said you're kind of in this, like, in-between phase, and that's totally fine and understandable, I guess. But what, how could people get involved in the campaign? What would you all want them to do? Uh, where could they find more information on Jessica Rezenschick and her situation? Yeah, I don't know, all of that stuff. Yeah,
1: so... Um... We're in the in-between phase. But like I was saying, um, the best way is to get on the petition. And, like, we really want to encourage people to, like, what is helpful no matter what phase the campaign is is getting people to know Jessica's story. And so people can do that by going to the website, which is supportjessicareznicek.com. You can remember how to spell Jessica's last name by thinking, like, (laughs) res-nice-k. And um, supportjessicareznicek.com. And on there you can buy a shirt, which is a cool way to spread the word and part of the proceeds go to the campaign um, to free her. It's a really amazing shirt with the design on the front did um, by an indigenous um, artist and uh, it's a it has a red wing uh, bird on it, which is Jessica's favorite bird. Um, so another it's one way to support it. you can also find the petition on there. Again, if you sign the petition, you can get your uh, name on the email list. Um, but beyond those things we ask people and you can also write Jessica a letter and you can find that on the website as well in prison but we will have a ton of ask in the future and so the best way to find out about those ask is to either follow us on social media which is at free Jess or by signing the petition and getting your name on the email list Um, and then do things on your own so like we've been encouraging people like if you're going to a climate justice protest, make a sign that says Free Jessica Check and put the website on it, you know. If you want to do a banner drop over a highway that says Free Jessica Check, you know, like, do that and take a picture and post it on your social media and tag us. Uh, write an op-ed, you know, there was this really amazing op-ed that came out in Canada. And uh, someone from 350 in Canada said, you know, what can we do? And so we sent a list. We were like take what I'm doing now, you know, take a sign to a protest, write an op-ed. And he wrote an op-ed and he got it published in like the CNBC, I think it is like the national big Canadian thing about Jessica's case. So one person asked what he could do. We gave him a list. He did one of the things and got it in a national news publication. So, you know, kind of get creative and, um, Right now, just think about how can I spread the word about Jessica's case maybe a little every day? Is that telling, telling someone about it? Is that sharing stuff on social media, making a sign or writing an op-ed? And, you know, in the meantime, stick around with us and wait for our updates and tag us, you know, with all the things you've come up with. And uh, we will definitely have clear ask on who to call and all of that eventually once the next phase of this campaign starts.
0: That's awesome. That's some good homework to do. I appreciate it. <laughs> Always good to have a nice list of things. All right, Alex, thanks so much for coming on. I uh, really appreciate you talking us through the, the Jessica Brunswick case and um, man, it's such a cool thing to hear about and also kind of a bummer, but <laughs> good to be in the know, I think. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast uh, if you subscribe at $2 or more, you get access to our cool invite-only Discord, uh, where we talk about all kinds of things. Sometimes we read books together. Sometimes we share recipes. Sometimes we just post pictures of our pets, and it's all good. Uh, nice to have a community to go along with the podcast, for sure. Our intro music is by Amaria Armstrong, and our outro music is by Theological Spoon. We'll see you next week.
2: Keep your hoods up, and you stay up late in Jackson. You Keep your hoods up, well, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would